All right. Let me see here. We are live on Facebook. Hello to our Facebook audience, whoever's out there. Um, hope you all doing well this evening. Welcome to Bible study. Get this out the way. There we go. Welcome to Bible study. It's good to see you all today. Um, we're going to finish up Deuteronomy 17, beginning at verse 14, and then go through verse um, chapter 18. So, hope you all have had a good week. Had a nice time Sunday um, at church. And, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm having lunch with uh, Rick tomorrow, the husband that came Sunday. Uh, him and his wife, I'm, I'm going to have lunch with him tomorrow. Uh, talk with him and everything and get to know him a little bit and see what's going on with that so we just thank the Lord for his grace and hope some of y'all at least are starting the reading through 1st Samuel 1st 2nd Samuel these next two months uh, this morning was uh, and you know like I said I always encourage just doing a chapter at a time you know taking time to, to journal and pray uh, on what you read and of course if you read today the first chapter you saw uh, Hannah the son the mother of Samuel you know she was barren and and the Lord she uh, prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered her prayer and opened her womb and uh, her son Samuel she had promised that she would give to him um, and she she did that so it's a good narrative you, you introduced to Eli the high priest and his two sons, and they're going to play into the narrative in First Samuel as as you move forward into the next few chapters. But uh, this steady reading of God's word uh, helps us to grow, and this is part of what we're going to look at tonight as we go through uh, the end of this chapter that we're looking at, chapter 17, into chapter 18, seeing the importance of the word of God for his leaders uh, pertaining to the king but also implications for us. So let's pray and go for the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word tells us that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to study your word together. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you, Lord, for using your word to grow us and to work in us to your glory. And I ask, Father, tonight you fill me with your spirit to teach this text well as I've been meditating on it. And send your spirit, Lord, to illuminate the truths that we will hear this evening uh, concerning laws pertaining to kings and portions for uh, the priest and uh, the Levites. And also the new prophet like Moses, who we know ultimately points to Christ. So, Father, be with us tonight as we study your word in Christ's name amen so we're going to begin uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 17 uh, the first part of chapter 17 we looked at last week uh, were the forbidding form the forbidden forms of worship things that God had forbidden and one of them was uh, transgressing against his covenant serving other gods and the legal decisions about priests and judges 
And now we pick up on laws, excuse me, concerning Israel kings, Israel's kings. And remember, just to remind ourselves, the book of Deuteronomy, Israel hasn't yet entered into the promised land. God is preparing them for the promised land and what they are to do once they get over there. And so now we see laws concerning their kings. So inevitably, as we're going to see, Israel will have kings. So it says in verse 14, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Keep that phrase in mind. Whom the Lord will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you should never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Let his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it, read in it rather, all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up from his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, as I was reading that just then, and I was reading it earlier, certain scriptures came to my mind, and certain figures in Old Testament uh, scripture came to mind as I was reading those passages. Uh, the good thing about God's word is that God's word confirms itself. You confirm scripture by scripture. Uh, the Bible provides its own interpretation of itself. And as we endeavor to become students of God's word, again, you don't have to go to seminary to do that. Just a steady diet of God's word. You'll see as you're reading scripture, you have a, a word picture in your mind of different biblical figures or different parts of the Bible that other parts of the Bible refer to. So when we're looking at this part, we're looking at the kings. So obviously, when you read through 1 Samuel, as we read through it this month and next month, you'll see the first king that Israel had was Saul. And then after Saul was David, and after David, Solomon. Then after Solomon, I think it was uh, Jeroboam, Jeroboam or Rehoboam, uh, one of his sons. And then uh, after which the, the kingdom was uh, split in two. And then you have the northern kingdom, who was Israel, and the southern kingdom, the two tribes. Ten tribes went to the northern kingdom, and two tribes went to the southern kingdom, and they were all ruled by kings. Uh, Israel, all of their kings were wicked. The southern kingdom, they had good kings and bad kings. So when I'm looking at the rules and laws concerning kings, I think to myself, the history of Israel from this point forward. Uh, it was about 400 years before uh, King Saul was chosen by 
Israel's people as king. So we kind of see we're looking ahead to see how those kings fail based on what we're reading here because of what they did not do, what they failed to do. And we're going to see that as we look at this passage. So first, God says, when you come to the land which your Lord, with, which the Lord your God has given you, which is the promised land, when they cross over Jordan and possess it and dwell in it, that means that they take possession of the land, they defeat the enemies, and they're settled. In the book of Joshua, we saw that where the, the different land distributions took place. In fact, a great majority of the middle part of the book of Joshua, as when we were reading through it uh, these past couple of months, you saw the distribution of the the tribes getting their allotted land that's when they were settling into and dwelling in the land they had to move out their enemies dispossess them and settle into and dwell in that land and then they say I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me the Lord says you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses Now, so it's interesting to consider whether or not God wanted an earthly king over Israel. Uh, You know, it could be up for debate. Now, in 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter, uh, it gives the record of Israel's demand for a king. So, turn to 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter. And we're reading ahead, of course, since we're reading through this book. But you'll, you'll kind of see what lies ahead if you haven't read through First Samuel before. That's why, I, you know, in, in encouraging us to hey, read the Bible with me as we read through to, to see the narrative of Scripture. So First Samuel 8, the very heading at the beginning of chapter 8 in my Bible says, Israel demands a king. So if you look at chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. Well... Let me go back to the first verse. Let's look at context here. So, 1 Samuel 8, beginning at verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made sons, his sons judges of Israel. The name of his first son was uh, Joel, second son, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, nor turned, uh, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Anyway, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him behold you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations what did we just read in Deuteronomy I set a king over you I will set a king over you like all the nations that are around me if Israel says that and guess what Israel said to uh, Samuel for us a king like all the other nations all the other nations around Israel all the the Canaanites the Hittites the Moabites the Amorites all those ites they had kings over them Israel did not but look at verse 6 this thing displeased Samuel when they said give us a king to judge us and Samuel prayed to the Lord and this is what the Lord said to Samuel listen to this the Lord said to Samuel obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me for being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also do unto you. Now then, obey their voice. Only 
you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, was this a God-appointed king or a king appointed by the people? It was a king appointed by the people. That's why I'm going back to Deuteronomy in this passage. He says, you shall set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. That's the difference. Okay? That is the difference. So we can say that God wanted Israel to have a king, but it had to be a king of his choosing in his timing. Not because the other nations had kings and they didn't, but it had to be God's choosing and God's timing. And Saul is a perfect example of a king out of God's will. Chosen by the nation at their own timing. Now, David is the perfect example of the king chosen by God because David was a man after God's own heart, as Scripture says. David was the king of God's choosing, but Saul was not. And the consequences were tragic for Saul and for Israel. So God says here in Deuteronomy to Israel, a king of his choosing, whom the Lord your God would choose. So, practical applications here. Many times, we're not patient in waiting on God. We're not patient in doing God's will by, by waiting. We, we try to do things of our own choosing without waiting on the Lord to move on our behalf or move for us. And many of us, all of us, have made choices in life that we think back and say, man, if I just waited, if I was just more patient, if I just waited on the Lord. All of us have those type of regrets. On a small scale, we do. Israel committed that sin on a larger scale. So... They did not wait on God's choosing. 400 years later, from this uh, chapter in Deuteronomy, 400 years later, uh, Saul was chosen as, as king. Man, the Lord is smart. The Lord is so wise. He is so wise. He is so wise. He is so wise. God insisted that their king be his choice. So, also it says a requirement is that the, the king must be a fellow Israelite. And, you know, at least they didn't violate that. Okay, it must be someone from among their own brethren. Now, he goes into how the king should be, how the king should govern himself. Verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Okay? This is a trivia question. You don't have to feel bad if you don't know the answer. What king in Israel's history defied those three different commands? 
Okay? You'll find out. This is why it's called Bible study. All right? First, he says, you shall not multiply horses for himself. In other words, the future king must not put undue or unnecessary trust in military might because you know they they didn't have tanks and all that stuff back then the the king's might was shown by how many horses they had those horses carried chariots and carried the soldiers to war so it would be like the, the equivalent of having a lot of tanks or a lot of armament and stuff like that so the king was not to put was not to put undue trust in military might because if he did that he would be trusting in his military might instead of in who God okay then he says don't even go to Egypt <laughs> and get more horses so the warning was against too many horses too many wives and too much wealth okay so it deals with military personal and economic spheres that the king was supposed to be a good steward over those things so he shall not multiply wives for himself. This future king of Israel must not put undue emphasis on physical indulgences. The flesh. The occasions of the flesh. Multiple wives. And then. Because what would the wives do? They would turn his heart away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself so this deals with what possessions now each of these is a matter of balance you know like I say you don't want to fall into one ditch or the other you know you want to have some balance there's nothing wrong with having horses there's nothing wrong with having one wife <laughs> and there was nothing wrong with having riches silver and gold but I mean it's okay to have some military power but not too much it's okay to have one wife and certain comforts but not too much some personal wealth it's okay to have some personal wealth but not too much there had to be a balance now this is in regards to kings what king encountered all these pitfalls it was King Solomon. Okay. And we're going to look at some instances here. So we're going to turn to the book of First Kings. We're going to look at chapter 4, chapter 10, and chapter 11. First Kings 4 and 26. This is King Solomon. And remember, this is God's commandment to kings. It's King Solomon. So 1 Kings 4 and 26. <laughs> Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. 40,000. Yes. He had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. And then 1 Kings 10 and 28. He had horses imported from Egypt. They get, they get 10 and 26 here. I mean 28. 
First game's 10 to 28. Yep, they went to Ofer, which is in Egypt, and brought their from their gold for unto the talents, and they brought it King Solomon. So he had horses imported from Egypt. Ten and twenty-eight. Solomon import and Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q, and the king's traders received uh, from them uh, from Q at a price. So he imported, and then that's not it. First Kings 11, the next chapter, Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And look at verse, verse 3 of chapter 11. They turned his heart away. They turned away his heart. And then back in chapter 10 and verse 23, uh, he surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches. That's the silver and gold part. So Solomon was the richest king in all the earth. And he had a harem of women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's over a thousand women in his, in his harem. A lot of kings back then had harems like in their palace. There are places where all the, the wives and stuff lived and mingled around or whatever. So he had seven. He had basically a thousand. <laughs> 700 wives, 300 concubines. <laughs> and over 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. So, looking at this passage again, God says he should not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. You should not return that way, neither shall you multiply wives for yourself, or himself rather, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Solomon is the perfect example. And the thing is, you, can, you know that Solomon knew all these commands. But he deceived himself. He, he probably could ask himself, how much is multiply? I can handle that. I haven't gone too far. Anybody seen evidence that 700 wives and 300 concubines, you know, uh, would, would, would be too much. But, you say that. But we must never, the, the things that we do, the thing that we could do most dangerously is underestimate the human heart's ability to deceive itself. That's why the Bible tells in Jeremiah 17 that heart is deceitful above all things and exceedingly wicked. Who can trust it? We can't trust our hearts. We cannot underestimate the deceitfulness of our heart. We, we, we can be self-deceived in thinking some things we're doing is right when it's sinful against God also. 
we in our sinfulness we can justify any sin you know I always use the example and, and, and we all know this uh, a, a person who's in adultery they'll say well my, my husband or my wife is not meeting my quote needs they're not satisfying me they're not loving me they're not giving me enough attention or affection now I'm not saying those things are, are right but they're also not excuses to step out on your on your husband or your wife. That's right. So it's, it's not an excuse because you're not getting enough affection. You know, you try to reconcile those things through pastoral counsel. But that's not a license to justify going out and committing adultery. But our hearts can deceive ourselves into thinking that, yeah, I know God's word says this, but Solomon knew God's word. God even warned Solomon not to do it. When you read first Kings, you'll see the Lord warned Solomon twice. He warned Solomon twice. And what did Solomon do? He still did it anyway. So it's not as if Solomon didn't know better. One, he was the king. And so he should have known better. So the Lord did warn him. But Solomon chose to uh, ignore the warnings of the Lord. And the Lord always warns us people about sin. Now, God warns Solomon here in 1 Kings 9. He says in 9 and 6, this was after Solomon had made sacrifice to God when the temple was built. He says, but if you turn aside from, from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the people. So God had warned him about keeping his commandments. And this is one of the commandments of the king, I mean of God, to not take on multiple wives. To not have too many riches. To not have too many horses. Those were commands of the Lord for the king. So God did warn Solomon. But in his sinfulness, what did he do? He ignored those warnings. He didn't he didn't heed them. So that was the first thing. Now, the second part of this points back to the previous verses beginning at verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. Then he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. Remember they didn't have printing press back then. They had to write copies of the word. From the one before the priests. The Levites. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life. That he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, and to be careful to observe all the words 
of the law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom he and his children in the midst of Israel so the king God called the king to labor over they used parchment paper back then you know, you, we, we use parchment paper now to like bake cookies and stuff like that and everything. But the king, they, now this is the king, the ruler, had to write down a copy of the word to make a personal copy of the law. So this shows how greatly God wanted the word of God to rule and govern the hearts of his rulers. So God basically wanted excuse me his kings to be scribes why because God prioritized no he wanted the king to prioritize the word of God in how they lead they lead by the word they lead according to the word that they write down and that they read it that's how God wants his leaders to be Okay, so the leaders that God appoint, even all the way up to uh, all the we're not Israel in the church, but not also in the church, but I would say also in society. Our leaders should have a knowledge of God's word and how to lead people in general through common grace. Think about how far our nation has fallen from respect and reverence for, for the word of God beginning at the White House and, and not just this administration but all previous administrations there's no reverence or respect for the word of God or the commands of God or even the general principles in scripture there's, there's no respect there's no regard for God's word at all period none right if so we wouldn't have all this chaos going on if the governor's mansion was governed by the word of God so the leaders the rulers in this context God's people but I will expand it to all of us God wanted his word to be on the hearts of his rulers but he also wants his word to be on the hearts of his people it is very important that we think about this as believers the importance of God's word on the hearts of his people and why that is important. Guess what? That's why Solomon failed. There was an old saying by uh, D.L. Moody. Um, he says, this book will keep you away from sin or sin will keep you away from the book he basically said the Bible will keep you away from sin or sin will keep you away from the Bible and if that's not true <laughs> nothing is David said in Psalm 119 and 11 your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you that's Psalm 119 and 11 your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you how do we hide God's word in our heart we read it we pray 
the word. We meditate on the word. We study the word. That's why our church is committed to that. That's why I challenge everybody. Hey, do these Bible reading challenges with us. Learn. Some people, you know, when I say we're doing first and second Samuel, they probably know which testament the book is in. I mean, you know, I mean, seriously. Some of us probably never, and, and that's okay. That's why we're doing it. By God's grace, I've read through the Bible a lot, but I, I still need to read it more. I, I've done studies in first and second Samuel. But I still need to read it more and learn more about God. It's not like I've I plumbed the depths of it. So that's why I encourage us as a church. Hey, let's read the Bible together. Let's let's read these books together. Let's let's know God's word. Let's know his commands. Let's let's see his work of redemption through scripture. Let's see what he requires of us. Let's see what God has done and is still doing by means of his word. And you know what the word of God does? The, 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 the Holy Spirit of God. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, one of his roles is to apply God's truth to our hearts. That's one of his roles. As we read scripture, the spirit of God applies that word to our hearts. Super, it's a supernatural act. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. He, Jesus said that in John 14, he will lead us into all truth. That's part of his role. All truth is what? Scripture. It's not human wisdom. It's not grandma's wisdom. It's not the wisdom of this world. It is the wisdom that comes from God. And the Holy Spirit of God applies that truth to us. So as we read, that's what he does. Jesus says this in John 14, beginning at verse 25 to his disciples. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That is what he does. He teaches us the words of Christ. All the scriptures, the words of Christ, not just the ones in red. Okay. All of the Bible are the words of Christ and the Holy Spirit teaches us as we read scripture God is teaching us his word by means of the Holy Spirit but if we don't ever read there's nothing the Spirit will apply to us to our hearts if we don't ever open up our Bible not just waiting until we get to church on Sunday so this was important for God's leaders is not just important for them. It's not just important for pastors. It is also important, important for all believers. So that's why we, I encourage, you know, I was, uh, the church that I was saved in, it was a holiness church. They did a lot of things wrong. But one thing they put emphasis on was reading the Bible. They were very legalistic about it and made it seem like you, you were going to hell if you didn't, which was wrong. But they encouraged Bible reading. I tore my first two Bibles up. I still got them at home. I mean, falling apart and everything. Highlights everywhere, writing because I was just so hungry. You know, I was a young convert, of course, but still, I just, you know, read the Bible. 
know, they never really explained everything. They said like private interpretation, which is not good, but they they emphasize the reading of scripture. Read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. I was reading the Bible all the time. I still got that old Schofield, my first Bible I got when I got saved, the old Schofield study Bible. I still have it. It's about falling apart, but I but I still have it. But they emphasize reading the Bible. Psalm 119, the whole psalm is uh, praising God's word and the importance of God's word. All 176 verses. And Psalm 119, 11 says that you worry about hitting my heart. So looking at this passage here, God is saying, write a book for yourself and it shall be with you and you shall read it all the days of his life. That's what the king is supposed to do, that he may learn to fear the Lord. How do you learn to fear the Lord? By reading your word and seeing who God is. When you read the word, you learn more about who God is and you will fear him more. Now, again, not a a scared fear but a reverential fear first chapter first Samuel what can we learn about God God hears the prayers of his people who are in distress he heard the prayer of Hannah she was she was murmuring and and uh, Eli saw uh, her lips moving and you know he thought something was wrong with her but it wasn't she was praying to the Lord because she was barren her husband's other wife had kids, had children, and she was mocking her and, and taunting her because she didn't have children. So that, you know, caused Hannah to be in, in distress and have anxiety and everything. But what did she do with that? She prayed to God and said, God, be blessed with a son. I will give him to you and I will make sure I don't shave his head. His head will not be shaved and his hair will not be cut. We learn about God now that God hears the prayers of his people when they when they when they cry out to him when they're in distress you won't know that if you don't read the word you won't have confidence to go to god in distress if you don't see that god answers the prayers of those who are in distress like he did with hannah because what did he do he answered her prayer her husband went in and and you know lay with her and we don't know how long it took but she ended up having her son Samuel you learn about God in that that God answers prayers God hears the prayers of those of his people when they're in distress but you'll never know that if you don't read the word that's how you learn to fear God because you know you, you worship God you have a worshipful fear of him and remember the Bible will keep you away from sin Obviously, looking back at um, King Solomon, he didn't read his Bible enough. Exactly. So he says that he may fear, learn to fear the Lord. How do you learn? By studying. By keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, not just keeping them, but doing what? doing them so we don't read the bible just for heart knowledge i mean head knowledge we read it for heart knowledge also so we read the bible we read scripture 
just as the king, the rulers are supposed to, to do what we read. And why do we do it? Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up against his brothers. That means he's not lifted up with pride. Reading the Bible keeps us humble. It shows us how big God is and how small we are. That's what the Bible shows us. God is big. We are small. We can't answer the prayers that we pray for. Hannah was powerless when she prayed to God about having children because if she had all the power, then she would have had children. So looking back to Solomon, if, if, if Solomon who was endowed with all the wisdom from God, if he, and he was used by the Lord to write part of his word, he allowed sin to keep him from the book. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, but yet he let sin keep him from the book. What hope do we have in trusting God's book to keep us away from sin? We read the word and we pray to God. What did Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And what is the mouth of God? His word. Not some special revelation. No. So this is why it was important for the king. And it's important for us. That his heart may not be lifted up against his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments, either to the right hand or to the left. In other words, keeping that straight path. Keeping that straight path. That's what we ought to do with the word. We, we follow it to the T, basically. This was God's desire for the king. And again, it's remarkable that the Bible can keep a person away from sin. Because again, the word does a, I'm just reminding us again, I said it just a few minutes ago. The word does a spiritual work in us behind the scenes. It does a spiritual work. That's fine. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. I, I guess with the method that we use is, as we read each chapter, you know, like I said, we break down um, what, we, what do we learn about God? You know, what do we see God doing? Um, also, we see... What are some ways that this, this passage points to the gospel? What is this passage? Uh, is, are, are there any commands in there? What are some things that uh, we can do from what we have read? Like I said, with the first chapter, okay, for instance, the first chapter of 1 Samuel, we read about the story of, of Hannah. Now, that's who it basically centers on. Um, and also Eli, who has his two sons, who are the, the priests. So we can learn about God, that God hears the prayers of 
his people in distress because Hannah was in distress. She couldn't have children. She prayed to the Lord about that. And what do we see God doing? God answered her prayer. So we see that God hears the prayers of his people and he answers the prayers of his people in their distress. That's something we learn about God. Okay. Um, and so what does that tell us? What, what can we learn from that? That we can pray to God. We can trust God in distress by going to him. We can cast our cares upon him. People may mock us like she was mocked by her husband's other uh, wife that had kids. People may mock us for different things because of our faith or whatever the case may be. But instead of focusing on them, what do we do? We focus on God. We pray to God. So just 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 little things like that. Um, and as far as the gospel is concerned, Jesus is a gracious savior. He's a gracious high priest who hears his people. He intercedes for us. He brings our prayers before the father. That's what Jesus does. When we're in distress, we go to God in the name of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He brings our prayers before the father. That's what he does. He mediates for us. He intercedes for us in times of what? Distress. That's the gospel. He does that for his people. He doesn't do that for unbelievers. So as we read through uh, scriptures, we just meditate on those on those truths and also do cross references. If you have a Bible that has cross references in them, um, like mine does, you can look at other uh, you know notes and stuff in your Bible, cross references to other parts of a scripture to kind of like I did with this that we in tonight. I cross reference uh, Solomon because. Solomon, first person that came to mind, you know, when I started reading this passage, because he was the king who did all these things that God said kings should not do. So that's like a cross reference right there. And then going to uh, hiding the word in our heart, going to Psalm 119. So you could do cross reference. If, if your scripture has cross references, in, you got a good study Bible that has those in them, then you can go to those cross references also. And they help give you understanding. And then you just pray about what you read. You know, when I was praying this morning, I was like, God, uh, help me to go to you in distress. God, thank you for hearing my prayers when I'm in distress. And, of course, I pray for our church members. I, I said, Lord, I pray for any of our church members who are in distress about different things. And, 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 and that they go to you in prayer, but also, Lord, that you hear them. I lift them up to you, those who are in distress, you know, interceding for our church members. That's how you can turn the scripture into prayer. You know, you heard Hannah's prayer. You're still faithful, God. You still, you know, you hear our prayers. You you haven't stopped, you know, listening to our prayers. You haven't stopped answering our prayers. So you can just take those scriptures and just pray the word of God back to him. And that'll kind of, you know, intensify your study time also. And what does God do? He works supernaturally through that. Now, John Poole the theologian said the scriptures diligently read and studied are a powerful and probable means to keep the king humble because they show him that though a king he is subject to a higher power higher monarch to whom he must give an account sufficient to abate the pride and the haughtiness haughtiest person in the world if he duly consider it 
So in other words, he's saying the scriptures studied and read will keep a king humble. Why don't we have humble leaders in our nation? Because they don't read scripture. They don't know that they have a power greater than them, higher than them, the God of all creation who they have to give an account to. Just imagine if our leaders led as if they have to give an account to God one day. Just think about that. Our president is in office right now. The one that was before him. The one that was before him. The one that was before him. All of our leaders. Not just picking on one. All of them. If they led our nation as if they're going to have to stand before God and give an account one day. Because guess what? They will have to stand before God and give an account. If they led that way, we will have less chaos. There will be a, uh, a more restraining power on the rampant sin and debauchery that we see in our nation. If our governors of our states, of these 50 states, led their states as if they know that they would have to give an account to God one day. If our congressmen up there in D.C., in the U.S. Capitol, our 435 uh, representatives and our 100 senators, if they represented their districts knowing that in a way that they have to give an account to God one day, they wouldn't vote for some of the foolishness that they vote for. They wouldn't pass legislation that promotes the killing of babies in the womb or that promotes uh, people mutilating their bodies and, and, and chemically castrating themselves, thinking that they're the opposite uh, sex or promoting marriage that is against what God has instituted from the beginning of Scripture. They wouldn't vote for any of those things if they knew that they had to give an account before God. State House, all of our governors, all of our state legislatures. Just imagine if they voted, introduced legislation, introduced bills with knowing that I'm going to have to give an account to God one day. Just imagine if they had that in their conscience. How much different things would be. Things wouldn't be perfect because we're still sinners. We're still going to sin. But sin would be less rampant. I, I, I believe that in my heart would be less chaotic than it is now. Remember always Christ or chaos. If our leaders, our elected leaders in our nation, in our world. Led as if they know they have to give an account to God one day. Just imagine. There will still be sin in the world. There will still be evil. But I believe it will be more restrained. It wouldn't be so out in the open. People wouldn't be openly feeling free to do all types of debauchery. There are things that are being done now that folks just did in secret. Now it's all out in the open. No shame. Why? Because the leaders 
The leaders have not committed themselves to God and to his word. The same thing happened in Israel when they had all those wicked kings that built all these high places. The Asherah pole and giving their children, burning their children, sacrificing their children in the fire, having all these foreign wives. You had King Ahab who had Jezebel as a wife. He was wicked and his wife was more wicked. And they went after the prophet Elijah. And this was the king of God's people. And look at the debauchery. When you read through, when we get to first and second kings, after Solomon died, after the king was split in two, you're going to see all these kings. You're going to be like, what in the world were these people doing? Why? Because these kings didn't do what God had commanded here in this chapter, in these verses. Their hearts were lifted above their brothers, and they did turn aside from the commandments to the right and to the left. And he ends by saying, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And you know what happened? They didn't continue in Israel because they were taken into exile. Why? Because the kings failed to read the word, to study the word, and to live the word. They failed. They abdicated their responsibility. They didn't continue long in their kingdoms. And this is what happens when we depart from the living God. That's what happens when our leaders do that. When Israel's leaders did that. So landing this plane here, I knew I wasn't going to get to the 18th chapter today because I wanted to kind of plumb the depths of these verses here, looking at the the uh, prioritizing the word of God and why it is so important to do that. Listen to this scripture right here. This is David saying this in, in Psalm 31 and 19. One thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Oh, sorry, this is uh, Psalm 27 and 4. That was David's attitude. The more we know God's word, the more we read God's word, the more we know him fully, the more we love him deeply. And we'll worship him more perfectly. And we will fear him more completely. Again, it says Psalm 27 and 4. One thing have I de desired of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's what we get. That's, that's what our heart cries out as we study the word, as we learn him more. So, 
the heart of the king, the heart of the leader, the heart of the Christian must be centered in the word of God, in the truth of God. We're going to always maintain this because it is true. The word of God is the only truth. It is the only source of truth. Anything that's true in this world comes from the word of God. It is the source of truth. It is the foundation of all truth. Anything that's true and right in the world has its source in the word of God. As we read the word, as a church, as individuals, as we preach the word, that's why I endeavored about 10 years ago, as I learned about expository preaching from uh, Bob and all those brothers and the importance of it, preaching through books of the Bible, the importance of that, seeing scripture unfold, the narrative of, of, of God's uh, redemptive plan, the, the, the thread of scripture, scripture being unfolded. The more I saw the importance of that, I said, our church is going to do that. We're going to um, go through books of the Bible systematically and commit ourselves to that because I think that is a, a good means of growth for us and, and, and we see God working. And God works in the hearts of his people. It's supernatural. Like I said, you're not going to see it but you'll see the effects of it. You won't see the work, but you'll see the fruit of it. That's what I meant to say. You'll see it in your life. You'll see it in the life of our church as we commit to the word of God more, uh, uh, rally around the truth, be a bastion of truth in our community. And we could tell other people about it. Look, people are searching for biblical truth. They don't want all this nonsense that, that some of these other churches are doing. They don't want that. They want truth. They want to be told God's truth. They want to be changed. and trans It is God's truth that transforms us, that changes us, that renews us, that revives us. It is the truth of God's word. It's not man's wisdom. It's, it's God's wisdom that is found in scripture that does that work in us. And again, it's a supernatural work. And he did that work in the hearts of his people here in Israel. That was his goal. But they failed. Because they did not commit themselves to his word. And we, we, we see the consequences of it as we read First and Second Samuel. And first and second Kings. Even when it came to the promised land. I mean you know it didn't happen. Amen. So we thank the Lord for his word tonight. And I pray that the Lord uses this word. To encourage you. To. Read. The word more. Pray the word more. Read with us. And. The Lord's word does. It's work. Amen.